Brothers and sisters, friends, I see some enemies. Hey guys, it's Kevin, and you are listening to Connecting the Dots. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope this episode finds you well and strong-minded and open-minded, because to be honest, I'm going to need it. We're going to be talking about some shit today. Today's episode will be based around a new book called Because We Say So by Noam Chomsky. Picked up this book uh, a while ago in San Francisco, mostly just based off the title alone. It really caught out to me. I love it, Because We Say So. It's a great title. It's a great read. Uh, The book is actually based off a bunch of Chomsky's old essays and interviews over the years, ranging from, I believe, 2011 to 2015. So the time span is kind of large, and as a result, he covers and talks about a bunch of different issues. Uh, So the book's kind of all over the place, but it, you know, ranges from uh, issues regarding the 2012 election with Obama, uh, foreign policy, meaning how we treat other countries, education, global warming, issues with Israel and Iran, nuclear weapons, and just the general hypocrisy of America. Obviously, and as usual, we won't cover every topic or issue that he elaborates on, so I'll just pick a handful to talk about. And if you guys are interested, you can pick up the book yourself whenever you get the chance and hopefully get everything that it has to offer. But Chomsky's a great writer. He has some great insights, so I do hope that you guys check out at least one of his books at some point. If you've never heard of the man, it's all good. Now's your chance. But I am excited for this one, guys, so with nothing left to say, let's just get into it. Okay. Right out the gate, in the beginning of the book, Chomsky offers the readers a perspective, a different way of looking at the world to help get people to see reality a little bit more clearly. I'll share his insight a little bit later, but he's he's basically trying to put things into perspective for us. Way too often, people in this country choose to see what they want to see. And as a result, our vision becomes very limited, Our, our perspectives become very small, and it gives ignorance an opportunity to thrive, to grow. This is natural. It's expected. The question is, what are we doing about it? It takes work. It takes discipline and responsibility to develop correct vision, to be able to see things as they are, and to be able to empathize with other people, especially when these other people are total strangers, and they come from different cultures and backgrounds and races. So yeah, it takes a little bit of work to put yourself in someone else's shoes. In sociology... There is this concept called the sociological imagination. This kind of applies to what I'm talking about. The sociological imagination is just a simple practice of being willing to view the world from the perspective of other people so that you can better understand what it is that they are going through, what they are struggling with. So, with the sociological imagination, you're looking at the circumstances. You're practicing objectivity and empathy rather than quickly and instinctively relying on your own opinions or limited perspective, which is what most people do. I mean, think about it. Most people will see something on the news, they'll hear a story, they'll hear a tragedy even, and they will already start formulating their own opinions on the matter and ideas despite not having even been present or witness. So people are quick to look at something and then apply their own limited perspective uh, despite having no understanding of the reality of the situation. This is pervasive. Everybody does this. Everybody. So yeah, it does take practice and a little bit of mental training and discipline to combat this, but at the same time, simultaneously providing a better perspective for yourself. A limited perspective means you have a limited understanding. So expand your understanding to expand your perspective. 
look, no matter how smart you are, no matter how smart you think you are, your perspective is always limited. Always. Your perspective of reality does not make it reality. We all hold a certain perspective, which means we all only hold a part of reality. I've said this before. We all only hold a part of the truth. But I would say that the sociological imagination is actually a deployment of empathy. It's empathetic to dismiss your own individuality, your own opinions, to want to better understand the social world and how other people are struggling with social issues of the world. Imagine a world where people took the time to try and understand the circumstances of another person's being, of another person's suffering, or their habits or ignorance. Understanding leads to many things, including empathy, empowerment, forgiveness, love, all of these being extremely powerful forces, forces that are necessary to combat the world we are currently facing. When I, when I talk about love, when I talk about forgiveness and empowerment, it's not meant to sound preachy, it's not meant to make me sound good, it's not supposed to be these general terms that I just throw out. Look at the reality of the situation. Look at the reality that we are facing. We have some ruthless, vicious motherfuckers that have taken control of society, that hold power. How else are we supposed to combat them? How else are we supposed to fight them? With more hate? Being like them? Being vicious too? No. Think about it. Love, empowerment, forgive. These are tools. These are things that we can use. How, how, I don't see any other way to combat the people who are currently leading us. So I hope you don't, you guys don't take it as a preachy, um, you know, general terms that, that people just throw out there. I hear it in office. I hear presidents say it. I hear leaders say it. we got to love one another. I, I don't think it's that simple. That's why something like the sociological imagination absolutely comes in handy. The sociological imagination is a simple concept, honestly. But I also think it's how genuine solidarity is built. To be able to perceive how other people, how different groups, different countries and cultures are struggling, and to be willing to put yourself in their shoes to want to understand. I think that's something special. Unfortunately, it's also what Americans lack as well. It is the simplest thing, and we cannot do it. It would take a cold motherfucker to genuinely understand, to genuinely know, and still not give a shit about the circumstances of the people around you. I mean, these people exist. It's necessary to understand that, acknowledge that. They are here. I don't think I have a single listener that shares that mentality, but they are out there. Okay, uh, back to Chomsky. I, I said he provides an analogy to help provide us, uh, give us a better perspective. I shared the sociological imagination because it relates to his analogy. Maybe you will like his analogy better. In the beginning of the book, he challenges the readers to pretend that you're an alien, simply witnessing humanity. So pretend you're an alien watching humanity from the moon or something. You're watching our relationships, our systems, our hierarchies, our structuring, and the interactions of society and how we choose to live our lives. As an alien on the moon, where you can see the whole picture, meaning you have an expanded perspective, with your expanded perspective, you would watch in pity and dismay as the world's leading, most powerful, and influential country in history is leading its people right off the edge. You'd watch in horror as we throw away our perfectly edible food instead of giving it to the homeless because it doesn't make a profit. You would watch in horror as we chase death and neglect life by investing all of our money, all of our resources into the military and police and weapons over health and treatment. You'd watch in horror as we 
determine a person's worth based off their racial and physical features or distinctions. And you would watch in horror as we continue to pretend that there is no impending environmental catastrophe just beyond the horizon. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but the United States is leading us poorly. Our officials lead us poorly when they dismiss the threat of environmental and ecological disaster, when they allow so few people to live with so much and so many people to live with so little. The United States leads us poorly when, it, when, it, when they allow corporate kings to obtain positions of political power for private embitterment. They lead us poorly when they side with right-wing dictatorships overseas and in different countries for personal interests and resources. And you know that they are leading us badly when a president of the United States tells you not to worry in the face of a global pandemic. The aliens are looking at all this and plenty more. And if they have empathy, if they have understanding in a way that many of us lack, I, I bet they feel sorry for us. What misguided creatures we are. You are misguided when you do not give proper attention to your people, to your weakest, to your hurting, to your handicap, and to yourself. This is a form of killing. It's just a slow poison. When you do not nurture life, you are killing it. The rhetoric that we are, quote, quote, the greatest country. It's a lie. You were reminded of that lie the moment you turn off your TV and look outside. That's why some people don't turn their fucking TVs off. They don't turn their phones off because it's ugly out there. Imagine. Imagine that you have this. You have this big-ass cut, this big-ass gash on your leg. It's got dried blood. It's got pus. It's all purple. It's gross. It's a wound, right? I'm sure it would not be easy to look at. It's easier to ignore it, actually, to look at your other leg, to pretend it, you're okay. But doing all that does not change the reality of the situation that you are wounded. Very similar to how we're choosing to ignore the wounds in our nation and in our society. You don't help anyone, including yourself, by ignoring the severity of an issue. All these things, I, it does not mean that we are incapable of greatness. I believe with a lot of deep work and transformation and radical changes, I think it's totally possible. I'll always remain optimistic of that. But as of now, collectively, we are far from it. Okay, uh, Chomsky talks a lot about what he calls unpeople. Uh, unpeople, U-N-P-E-O-P-L-E. I've used this term once or twice before, I believe in last year's episode, rectification. For clarification, these unpeople, you know who they are. You've seen them before. You see them living in the slums. You see them in the food kitchens. Shelters, prisons, psychiatric wars, the projects. Unpeople are the homeless of Echo Park who were swept away by the police. They're the people who we choose to look through instead of looking at because looking directly at them disrupts our reality, disrupts our perspective. Similar to why we don't want to look at that huge cut on our leg. It's an ugly reminder of reality. It reminds us that we are not the greatest. And witnessing such human deprivation can cause a person to question things. You question the system. Witnessing deprivation should lead your asses to question the system entirely. But, in other words, these unpeople, they are the people who have lost their personhood or who have had it reduced. These are people who are forgotten and intentionally left out of critical political and social decisions that affect them daily. These are the unpeople, the other America. 
Chomsky also talks about unhistory as well. Unhistory is related to the fates and the lives of unpersons. So unpeople, they're generally left out of history because they are so dehumanized, as we already said. So basically, unhistory is just the history of the unpeople. You want to see an example of unhistory? Well, Chomsky says that could be seen in the Vietnam War, where America, or President Kennedy, launched a full invasion into southern Vietnam where they flew hundreds of bombing missions, where they authorized chemical warfare to starve Vietnamese people, and they drove millions of the Vietnamese people into slums. It's probably left that way as unhistory, because in reality, in reality, between the years 1964 and 1972, the wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth made a full effort using everything they had, with the exception of atomic bombs, to fight against a peasantry country. And they lost. I mean, to be honest, nobody wins a war. The, the people who actually lost were the men and women and children in the Vietnamese villages who were brutally killed by an extension of the United States government, meaning our soldiers. In addition, they had their homes and entire communities burned and the women and children were sent away to camps. By the end of the war, 7 million tons of bombs had been dropped on this peasant country and an area the size of Massachusetts was covered with poisonous sprays that we dropped on them. Allow me to despondently share the ruthlessness and reality of American foreign, foreign policy for you. After the war, Lieutenant Testimony stated that American soldiers at one point fed candy to the local Vietnamese children. And then they shot them dead. This is a this is unhistory, and these are unpeople because they have been left out of history, and we try to sweep away the reality of the situation and their fates. I remember I remember being a kid and learning about the Vietnam War. To this day, a couple of things I can still recall when first being introduced to it. First off, we assumed that America was the good guy in this encounter. As a kid, that's that's how it was framed to me and that's what I believed. I also remember for a very long time being confused as to why we went to war with the Vietnamese people in the first place. I didn't know shit about colonialism or imperialism or anything like that because American history conveniently glosses over that in the textbooks. American, American history is also very concerned, maybe even obsessed with the threat of communism and it remains obsessed with it to this day. I didn't know that the Vietnamese people were declaring their revolution and independence from France at the time, their oppressors, the same way that America once did with their British rulers in 1776? I wonder why they didn't share that. When every year we glorify the American revolutionists, but we didn't even bother to mention that the same applied for the Vietnamese people. Revolution is liberation. But I guess only certain people are allowed to be liberated, right? And then it gets even deeper. Our, our government's so-called justification for the war was to stop communism. They had a fear of it spreading, so we took it upon ourselves to police and brutalize an entire country into submission to stop the spread of communism. That's what they said. But a recorded national security memo also says that there was actually an interest in the rubber and tin and petroleum that was available in the region. In addition to that, there was also concerns about the geographical political location of the area. So, in summary, all that shit is American self-interest. But I didn't know 
that while Kennedy was denouncing communism publicly to the people, his undersecretary of state was also openly saying that the real attraction in Southeast Asia was their rich soil, their rich natural resources, their exportable products like rice and corn and spices and oil and all that shit. So now it comes full circle. We leave out of history that the Vietnamese were revolutionizing themselves on their own path for liberation and self-determination the same way that America once made that very same decision. And instead, history focuses on villainizing communism and using that as a justification for the war, while simultaneously remaining concerned with the resources from the peasant country. Well, no fucking wonder then that the history books felt tweaked. Because the reality was fucking atrocious. Imagine doing some shit like that and then having to share the truth with younger generations. It's shameful. To tell the truth would let the illusions fall, and then reality would assert itself again, and the, mis- the masters, they just, they can't have that. Although the Vietnamese people during this time, and the Vietnam War in general, can be used as an, as an example of unhistory, let me not limit them to that, simply because these people were more than just victims. They were fucking resilient, they were enduring, they were tough, and they did what not many other countries or people can claim. They outlasted America. That was only possible through their genuine determination to unify. That was only possible through the strength of their peasants, for their drive for social change, their organizing, which was impressive. And it was only possible because they prioritized social revolution instead of war. I want to take the time to emphasize these facts because although, yes, the Vietnamese people were victims, they never let that deter them from their liberation. Anybody who strives for liberation is not a victim in my eyes. Let me, let me also take this moment real quick to express my solidarity with the Asian American community and all the racial venom that they are currently facing. I don't usually talk about current events and shit that we see on the news and social media. I mean, I see it all. I just don't talk about it on here because there's already so many voices covering the issue. So, and that's also really not the point of this podcast. I mean, I could share more of my opinions, but I try to stick to sharing content content that can lead to critical awareness. My opinion wouldn't really help on the matter. Regardless, we know that this isn't some new phenomenon. Asian American racism has been historically prevalent within this country. America has always utilized its minorities when it's convenient, and then America always vomits them up when they are no longer useful. Personally, I live in a very unique community and that is like half Asian and half Latino. I don't know about you, but if you live in my community, I consider you a part of my people. So I feel your pain, I feel your oppression and the anger that you hold, and I hurt with you. By the way, solidarity isn't just some fucking nice little sentiment. Solidarity is how you build power, how you build brotherhood and sisterhood, how you build support and camaraderie. Solidarity doesn't send you my thoughts and my prayers. Solidarity shares my action, my strength, my intellect, my empathy, my everything. Solidarity puts me there with you, for reaction or action. There are actually, uh, there are some Bruce Springsteen lyrics that really epitomize solidarity perfect, perfectly, so let me, let me share that real quick, the, the intention of it. The song says, quote, Whenever you see a cop beating a guy, wherever a newborn baby cries, wherever there's a fight against blood and hatred in the air, look for me, I'll be there. Wherever somebody's struggling to be free, look in their eyes and you'll see me. So some fucking solidarity to the Asian American community and any other community that is oppressed or dehumanized. 
Solidarity always. All right, back to it. So who decides who is seen as people and who is seen as unpeople? Who has that power? The power to decide who is seen as people and who is dehumanized or what events are worth commending and which are worth forgetting, that power lies with the state. At least it's led and initiated by the state. But check your history books, check your, your high school history books and you can verify this. History and American history is much more than what you learn in class. But who decides on what you get to learn in class again? Oh, that's right, the state. But the truth usually speaks for itself at some point, despite the lies, despite the deception. But the state sets the tone. I mean, think about it. Up until, like, 2008, Nelson Mandela was considered to be a terrorist. And he was even accused of being one by President Reagan, I believe. And at another point in time, Saddam Hussein was taken off the terror list so that Reagan and the United States could provide him aid after he invaded Iran in 1982. Wow, Reagan really making himself look bad today. Uh, by the way, if you're going to make the claim that Trump is the worst president of all time, let me try and contend that with guys like Reagan and Bush. Look into these guys before you say Trump was the worst. It'll make that decision a lot harder because these guys were fucking scum. The framing of reality of history, people, events, all that shit comes from the state. The state actively formulates and influences perspectives on a mass scale. But where there is perception, there is deception. When someone is trying to form and influence your perspective, it is usually fueled with deception. In fact, the United States is so good at framing that when they, when, when they use phrases like, quote, the international community, they're really talking about U.S. allies and friends. Who else would they be talking about? Because everyone else has been reduced to unpeople or their enemies. Why would they take their enemies and unpeople into consideration? These people that they have dehumanized and brutalized and exploited, why would they talk to them? When they talk about the international community, surely they are talking about the United States-led World Bank, the U.S.-led IMF, meaning the International International Monetary Fund, or the U.S.-led United Nations. So that sounds a lot like the U.S. community, more than a genuine international one. But do you see how the framing is deceptive? In fact, the international community is actually routinely ignored by America. For example, when Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam wrote eight letters to President Truman reminding him of their right to self-determination and the promises of the Atlantic Charter. Obviously, those letters were ignored. But the point is, the United States acknowledges and dismisses who they want and at whatever time it is convenient for them. So don't buy the bullshit. It is our individual responsibility not to be misled. U.S. officials will tell you who your enemy are, who your enemies are, and why. While at the same time depriving their own people access to basic human necessities like healthcare and shelter, how are you going to tell me who my enemy is when you choose to fund the military over housing, healthcare, and education? How are you going to tell me who my enemy is when you choose to bail out banks and corporations in times of crisis instead of the people? How are you going to tell me who my enemy is while at the same time influencing everyone with propaganda and manipulative education and framed news? Huh? Don't tell me who my enemy is. I know who my enemies are. An example of this 
can be seen with Iran. The United States believes Iran to be an imminent threat, a formidable threat, despite the rest of the world seeing the United States and Israel as the biggest threat to the Middle East, as peace destabilizers. I mean, Iran is disliked, don't get me wrong, even within the Arab world, according to Chomsky, but by a much smaller minority than the U.S. would have you believe. Do you see that? Would have you believe? Deception. Deception distorts your perception. Okay, uh, let's, let's switch tones a bit real quick. I did mention that this book is all over the place uh, with the topic, so bear with me. Uh, now, Chomsky, Chomsky believes that education should actively produce knowledge that is critical of the status quo. I agree. Education should not be training people for obedience or uh, training or for you to simply regurgitate information. Education should not train us to accept the status quo. It should show us how to create a better future for ourselves individually and collectively. We've talked about this multiple times throughout the season. Education should be dialectical, not just routine or monotonous. Education should also be prog progressive, empowering, transformative, and rooted in the truth and reality. It should not be manipulative or misleading. When you allow history to be narrated to you, or you let myopic people tell you their version of history, or even a story, you are leaving yourself vulnerable to manipulation and deception. Unfortunately, though, the reality is our public education, as flawed as it is, is currently under attack. All sectors of it, from public elementary schools to high schools, community colleges, all the way up to the CSUs and university level. In the book, there is uh, one Cornell official who says, quote, There has been a shift from the belief that we as a nation benefit from higher education to a belief that since it's the people receiving the benefits of education, they should foot the bill. In other words, the individual and neoliberal mindset is overcoming the collective benefits of education. I've seen this sentiment personally. People now think that because education serves an individual, that that individual should be responsible for his or her own education. What the fuck? I, I couldn't oppose such a backwards notion any more than I currently do. Wow. In order to have a functioning and civilized society, all fucking people need to have the right to access education. By denying it to people, especially the most struggling, you are denying them access to self-emancipation and social mobility. When people are self-aware and mentally liberated, they're not going to want to eat your cheap processed foods, they won't rely on your debt for social control, and they won't believe the lies told to you on your local corporate news station. When you deny people access to education, it is a form of social control and manipulation, and we can't fucking stand for that, no matter what kinds of backwards fucking arguments that they offer for an explanation. This is a flirtation with the privatization of education. Neoliberal shit like this fucking disgusts me, honestly. Remember the sociological imagination that we talked about in the beginning? Yeah, pe people that want to dismantle public education, they do not share that practice. They do not share that sentiment. They do not practice empathy and compassion. Neoliberalism is the opposite of the sociological imagination. Instead of working to empathize or understand other people's circumstances, they put it on the individual, saying, work harder, try again, you're failing, and that shit fucking sickens me. You have no understanding of society if that's the kind of shit that you're saying. People who couldn't survive a week in a poor or a working person's shoes are out here saying, earn it, try harder. In America, the financially powerful, the politically powerful, the privileged and the strong, they do not use their positioning to fundamentally help 
the poor or the most suffering. Instead, they condemn them. They put the blame back onto them. The privatization of education exemplifies this. The aliens, those aliens on the moon who are watching us right now, they think we are a sad fucking species. We are a sad species when those who have concentrated wealth and power seek to concentrate it even further. But of course, Chomsky says that due to Republicans, there actually is a crusade for the privatization of education. Of course, who the fuck else is it going to come from? This is dangerous. One of our most precious institutions is under attack. Manipulative education can limit the perspective and understanding of a country's citizens. It can train people for obedience and indoctrination and discourage free and independent thought. Ailments that we should all be very familiar with already, honestly. If something as fundamental and common as education is under private or corporate hands, you are inviting disaster. We already have enough problems with gullible, naive, and ignorant people. How the fuck do you think all these QAnon people came around? We are already producing people who are victims to conspiracy theories, who are unseated from reality and believe any words that come out of a fucking demagogue's mouth. For example, like that an election was stolen. Google searching has replaced research and reading. YouTube has replaced classrooms and teachers. And social media has replaced journalism. Any fucking person that cares about the state of this country and her future should be admin about strengthening our education system, not privatizing it. You don't strengthen education with these little reforms and policy changes or even a couple million more dollars per state. I'm talking about totally revolutionizing the education system, man. Give it the proper investment and attention that it deserves. Update it, apply our skills, focus, and ingenuity towards education. The privatization of education sounds a lot like class tactics and class warfare, so I dismiss that option entirely. We don't need any more shit to fuel our caste system. In fact, let's talk about these tactics or devices of assault on education, by the way, just real quick before we move on. You see them in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. For example, the book says that since 1980, there has been a 600% increase in tuition. Damn. A 600% increase in tuition, while the working man and the working woman's wages have remained near the same for fucking decades, and while the cost of living continues to increase. How the fuck are working people supposed to afford a high-quality education when this is the reality? Another tactic is the corporatization of universities, which we've talked about last season as well. Corporatizing universities leads to increased levels of administration, uh, administration, <laughs> strengthening the bureaucracy of schools and weakening the genuine intent of real education. So, the institution of education is being transformed into a business, profits over knowledge. But indoctrination, propaganda, framed history, and the regurgitation of facts over insight all these things kill education, and this leads to social control, manipulation, and obedience. They are distorting perspectives. Genuine education is liberating. It is fulfilling. Its function should not be for control. But Rage Against the Machine, Rage Against the Machine they actually said it best. They said, who controls the past right now controls the future. Who controls the present right now controls the past. Think about it. Okay, let's switch gears uh, one last time and talk about one last issue. In the book, Chomsky talks about the 2012 election with Barack Obama and, and Mitt Romney. 
Given our recent election, I think it would be a good time to cover what he wrote about and how, unfortunately, little has changed within our bipartisan system. In 2012, which is almost fucking 10 years ago, just like right now, there were and still are some very pressing issues and conflicts that demand immediate attention. Right now, like back then, many of these issues were simply overlooked, barely discussed, or not discussed at all. I'm not going to list all these issues because they're pretty obvious. Also, this podcast has spent a lot of time talking about them because I know the fucking mainstream media is not going to talk about them. The history books do not talk about these issues. Uh, But the one that Chomsky focuses on is environmental disaster driven by global warming. Despite United Nations reports, despite the New York Times reports, despite data and scientific testimonies and advocacy and activism, not much is being done on this issue. In fact, there's actually been more drilling in the Arctic for minerals and oil. Joe Biden, our new president, has been adamant about not banning fracking, despite any consequences that it may have for the planet uh, decades down the line. I believe it to be our responsibility to set the world up and for future generations to be set up more successfully than the way we found this place. I find it inhumane and selfish and shameful not to share this mindset. I mean, if you think about it, what the fuck else are we here for then? It is our responsibility to protect the planet. Young people are a continuation of us, just like we are a continuation of our elders. If young people are a continuation of us, we have to make make decisions with their benefit in mind. It is cruel to dismiss foresight for the quest of profits. It is cruel to push profits over people or the environment. In fact, if all you care about is profits and money, the reality is climate change, which is caused by global warming, is actually responsible for slowing down world economic output by 1.6% per year, and these expenses are theorized to double within the next two decades. I know a lot of people don't care about that shit, but I feel the need to share it because I know a lot of other motherfuckers out there that only care about money, and they choose to shut their eyes and cover their ears when it comes to global warming, especially with any issue that interferes with their profits. Democrats and Republicans are actually the ones closing their eyes and stuffing their ears when it comes to global warming. In fact, today, the issue of global warming has pretty much been fucking vacated from the Republican Party entirely. They were in full denial of the issue. They are going backwards. Great. They're more regressives than fucking conservatives. Republicans are making things especially challenging when they want to stop the EPA, meaning the Environmental Protection Agency, from regulating greenhouse gases. In other words, they don't even want the EPA to monitor shit anymore. It's easy to ignore a problem when there's no data on it, I guess. In addition to that, Republicans also made the claim that we need to, quote, restore scientific integrity to our public research institutions and remove political incentives from publicly funded research. So in other words, Republicans are politicizing reactions to global warming, similar to how they politicize wearing a mask in the face of a global pandemic. Honestly, man, at this point, just shut the fuck up and get the fuck out of sight so we have a chance of actually solving these problems. You guys are barriers. The whole class is dismissed. You are not as helpful or as useful as you think you are. And the fucking Democrats better not applaud when I say shit like that because y'all is fucking next. The United States, including the Democrats, have not undertaken any set of policies at the national level to begin the use of renewable energy, despite the public wanting immediate action on the matter. The Democrats and Obama in the 2012 election, yes, they did use their platform to identify there is a global warming issue, 
but that's about it. No action. Typical. In fact, Obama, along with Biden, chose to continue allowing fracking despite their claims that there is a climate issue. So one party is in full denial, and the others are just straight fucking hypocrites. Look, I'm, I'm not going to talk about these guys too long, honestly. I think they are fucking ignoble with their manipulation and inaction. I think they are reprehensible. But it is a serious issue when one party denies the topic and the issue completely, and the other will acknowledge it, pander to us, and then do nothing. The aliens on the moon who can see the whole picture, they got the whole perspective, they're watching and observing. They can see both of these dysfunctional corporate parties leading us right off the cliff. Do you? Is your perspective expanded enough to understand what is happening? You know what? Chomsky, he actually provides some information that kind of joins the topics that we focused on today. He talks about education and global warming. Check this out. Obviously, the masters of society, the masters of mankind, they get very concerned. They are very troubled when the public starts to become influenced by science, by experts, by international countries, by organizations. Knowledge is always going to be scary to the manipulators. In fact, the masters have already taken action or attempted action on the matter with what is called the ALEC Act. A-L-E-C. ALEC Act. Look it up. Of course, the act was proposed and initiated, initiated by a corporate-funded lobbyist group, so I'm sure, yes, they have our best intentions in mind. But essentially, the act mandated, quote, a balanced teaching of climate change from grades K-12. through Balanced teachings, though, actually means climate change denial courses as an attempt to balance our climate science. In other words, they want to teach anti-global warming courses because momentum supporting Green New Deals and immediate action are starting to gain some popularity. But legislation based on the ALEC models have already been implemented in several states, according to Chomsky, meaning these classes are already being taught in certain areas of the country. This perpetuated skepticism, this propaganda, and the corporate tentacles have already started to affect U.S. public opinion on the matter, distorting the truth and making United States citizens, United States people, more skeptical and confused uh, in comparison to the global population. The United States, the richest, most powerful country on this planet, is out here exacerbating the issue of climate change rather than leading the charge towards remedy. The truth is, though, you cannot run from environmental disaster. There is no negotiating with, with it. There are no bailouts. There are no subsidies, no restarts, no friends, no nothing. We only have one fucking planet. The question is... With both parties making themselves useless on the issue. Who's going to defend the planet? Who's going to come to her aid? Not with good intentions or nice statements. But with policies. With laws. Action. Enforcement. Petitions. Rallies. Information. And advocation. If you didn't notice this by now. Let me try and put things into perspective real quick. We are humans. Humans depend on the well-being of other species, right? We consume the fish, we consume the cows, the pigs, the meat, the minerals, the water, the vegetation, and so on. So humans can only survive based off the well-being of other species, and those other species can only survive based off the well-being of their environment. The mountains, the water, the air, and so on. So, to protect ourselves, to protect the human race, we need to protect non-human species and their environment. We are intelligent, we have consciousness, we have awareness, we have brains. Yet we cannot survive 
without the well-being of other species and their conditioned environments. It's that fucking simple. Connect the fucking dots and see reality for what it is. We kill ourselves when we do not protect the planet and the life of other species. So the question remains, who's going to defend the planet, the mother of everyone, while our, while our leaders preoccupy themselves with shit like privatizing education and reframing history and manipulating perceptions and perfecting death and weaponry? Shit. I guess that means we're on deck then. Alright guys, that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you guys can make the time to read the book as well, because this is a damn good one. I know we kind of talked about a bunch of different issues today in this one episode, but let that be a testament to how interconnected and inexorable many of these issues are. That's why this damn podcast is called Connecting the Dots. But Chomsky and other great writers and public intellectuals, they can connect the dots a lot better for you than I can. So please pick up one of these books and uh, to get an even better understanding. Um, and hopefully that will lead to some action. Collective action. Nobody resists alone. Change comes when we resist collectively. A genuine and fundamental understanding is necessary. So when you start asking the right questions, and when you question power and the structure and the system, and they provide you the disrespectful comeback of, because we say so, then you can dissent. Because your understanding tells you, your perception tells you that that is bullshit. And at some point, we can't take that shit anymore. The first step is breaking their framework and getting a better understanding of reality. A better understanding expands your perspective. Chomsky himself criticizes liberals and conservatives, and I respect that. But as a result, naturally, he's been excluded from uh, their conversations related to social issues. They don't give a fuck what he has to say. It's too uh, dissenting. So you have to look into him and you have to look into him and other people like him on your own, people that are worth listening to. I'll be honest, he's not the most lively or energetic speaker, but this guy knows some shit, so he is worth listening to. As usual, I left a lot of stuff out. Uh, I obviously can't get to all of it, but I do hope that you look into the book on your own. The book talks about issues with uh, Gaza, Vietnam, environmental disaster, nuclear disaster, American foreign policy, meaning how we treat the rest of the world, and a lot of other enlightening topics. But if you are interested in a perspective that counters the mainstream media and the news, and this guy and other guys like him are out there for you. But anyways, I hope you picked something from this episode. Uh, if not, <laughs> that's my bad. I'll leave a link in the description for the book and also for this episode's protest song recommendation. It is by Jedi Mind Tricks and the song is called Uncommon Valor. It's a dope song, actually. We talked about the Vietnam War a bit and uh, this song is about that. Check it out. He's a great storyteller. Listen to the second verse specifically. It's very powerful. Listen to it. Let me know what you think. Uh, it's a heavy song, but I hope it makes you think. That's the point. Alright guys, anyways, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Be cool, man. Stay radical. Until next time, peace. And if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar.
true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say a war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes and with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death.